0: The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning is The Christian's Conflict. This is part three. Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. If you are visiting with us this morning, you've tuned in to our regularly scheduled program, already in progress. Quite a while in progress, I might add. Uh, We are in the midst of a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, where Paul, in chapter 7, has taken up a defense of the law of God. Uh, This is going to be our third and final sermon in a consideration of a small but very important part of Paul's defense. A small segment of text that began in verse 14 and now runs through the end of the chapter in verse 25. The text that was read in your hearing. Now, in that small but absolutely packed segment of text, Paul has illustrated from his own experience as a mature Christian man that the law is not to be blamed. The law is not to be blamed for our sin. The law is not to be blamed for the war that the Christian finds himself in battled over. He's previously explained how the law is used to stir up all manner of evil desire within us, all manner of concupiscence, as we discussed. He's explained how the, the law is used to bring someone under condemnation and death. So what then is Paul's answer To those who would say that his theology then impugns or discredits, somehow vilifies the character of the law of God. Well, Paul would say that the law is holy and that the commandment is holy and just and good. First, the law is not to be blamed for its failure to justify a sinner. The law can't justify a sinner, the law was never meant to justify guilty sinners. Paul asked the question in Galatians 3:21, uh, does the law then stand opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not, he says, for if there had been a law which could have given life, then truly righteousness, truly salvation would have then come through the law. But the promise of salvation was meant to be given through Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ alone. The law was merely meant to point you to him. So the law is not to be blamed. The law is not to be impugned or discredited or vilified because of its powerlessness to justify a guilty sinner. Secondly, the law is not to be blamed for its failure to sanctify even the seasoned saint. The law can't be blamed for that. The law was never intended to make us holy. The law is powerless to make us holy. Try as he may, The Christian cannot walk according to the law in order to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. It's by the Spirit that we must put to death the deeds of the body. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Walk by the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son. So, that we could fulfill the law by walking according to the Spirit. So, the law is not to be blamed for its powerlessness to justify a guilty sinner, and the law is not to be blamed for its powerlessness to sanctify the sinner. The law is intended to point us to the one who can do both. It's intended to point us to the one who can. (laughs) You can't heal a broken bone by getting an x ray, you can't fault. The x-ray for failing to heal your broken bone. So what is Paul doing then? What is Paul doing? Paul has subjected himself to the x-ray vision of God's holy law. And he has found under the x-ray vision of God's holy law, Paul has found something lurking there within his flesh that is a remnant of the old man. That old man that has been crucified with Christ. Paul says "Sin." Is present with me. I agree with the law with my mind, but I find find another principle. There's There's another law that lurks within the members of my flesh. Sin or evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. There is an evil that remains within me, a remaining sin, an indwelling sin, a remaining corruption. Saved by grace, now sinning against grace, right? Justified through faith. Now sinning at times as though faithless. A new creation in Jesus Christ. A new creation. I delight in the law of God. Why am I then embattled in this war against my flesh? Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then what does Paul do? Right? The x-ray of God's holy law does what the x-ray was intended to do. It drives us to the great physician where we receive the balm, the healing balm of the gospel. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So as we walk through the text then, Romans chapter seven, verses 14 through 25, the law censures our conduct, verses 14 and 15. The law reveals our remaining corruption. Verses 16 through 20, it brings us into conflict with remaining sin, verses 21 to 23, and then the law drives us, fleeing in confidence to our only hope, verses 24 and 25. That's where we pick up our text now this morning. Finally this morning, we conclude our consideration of this text with point four on your notes, our present confidence. We begin in verse 24. Paul, in the anguish of his heart, cries out, verse 24, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's a rhetorical question. There's only one answer. I thank God, verse 25, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, regrettably, the law of sin. So in verse 24 now, Paul erupts in misery, in anguish of heart over the reality of his remaining sin, over the reality of indwelling sin or remaining corruption. The sin that he sometimes finds within his own heart and mind, that sin inconsistent with his renewed heart and mind. He delights in the law. He agrees with the law that it is holy and just and good. He said those things. His mind, verse 23 at war with a powerful principle of sin that lurks within his faculties. The sin that he sometimes finds within his own heart and mind is inconsistent with his renewed affections. Paul's a changed man. So the sin that he finds within his own flesh, inconsistent with what he now loves, inconsistent with the way that he now thinks. He delights in the law. He loves the Lord. He hates unrighteousness. Godward sorrow accompanies his sin. The sin that he sometimes finds within his own heart and mind is inconsistent now with his renewed will. That which he wills to do, he sometimes doesn't do. That which he wills not to do, that he sometimes finds himself doing. Sin still has the power to bring even his renewed will into subjection. It's amazing, isn't it? Amazing. Paul is confounded by that fact. Paul is in anguish over that fact. Christians are confounded by that fact, in anguish over that fact. How often, brother, sister, has that been the anguish of your heart? God, please forgive me. How could I continue to sin against God in these ways? knowing that we're sinning against grace, knowing that we're sinning against the blood shed by the Lord Jesus Christ against that, for that, for the forgiveness of that sin. And yet we find ourselves doing the very things that we will not to do. Well, what is Paul's response to the reality of remaining corruption, to the reality of ongoing sin in his life? What is Paul's response to the conflict that too often grips his own heart to the inconsistencies exposed by the law that even now he finds lurking within his heart and mind. Paul's response is misery. It's misery. What else would be the appropriate response of a genuine Christian who hates sin, who loves the Lord? What is the response of a repentant Christian toward his sin, toward her sin? It's anguish of heart. It's misery. The only response to sin that is consistent with a renewed heart and mind, renewed by Christ, the inevitable response of a Christian to what Paul describes, verses 14 through 23 here, is a sense of wretchedness, a response of anguish. O oh, wretched man that I am. It's that response, brothers and sisters, that drives us fleeing to Christ. Isn't it that response that provokes within you a longing for heaven? That provokes within us a hope, a joy, a glory in what we've been given in Jesus Christ. A desire to be free forever from sin. What else is it to provoke within us? Right? Paul responds with a sense of wretchedness, a response of anguish. Listen, it, it, it could only be the absence of discernment, the absence of understanding, the absence of a, a properly functioning conscience, the absence of any understanding, the absence of the Spirit of God that could explain The absence of any anguish or misery over our own sin. In other words, someone who's floating through their so-called professing Christian life with no understanding, with no conviction over their own sin, is someone who should fear whether they're a Christian to begin with. The Laodiceans. In Revelation 3, we're studying that on Sunday nights. In that text, the Laodiceans in Revelation 3 did not know. They didn't know that they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They didn't know. Why? Because they thought they were rich. (laughs) They thought they were wealthy. They said to themselves, we have need of nothing. They didn't see their need. They didn't see their condition. They were blind. So what does the Lord do? The Lord instructs them to anoint their eyes with eye salve that they may see. They're blinded, spiritually blinded. What would be their response, those Laodiceans? What would be their response to sin if, in fact, the Lord were to grant them repentance? What would it be? Anguish, <laughs> misery, sorrow, Godward sorrow over sin. Repentance. Romans 7 and Revelation 3 are the only two places in the New Testament where that Greek adjective translated wretched there, those are the only places where that word is used. The noun form of the word is used to refer to misery or miseries. The verb form of the, the word is used to refer to affliction or to anguish. you see the, the word? James chapter 4 verse 9, James says lament, same word. In verb form. Literally, James says, Feel wretched. Feel your wretchedness. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord because we should walk around as despairing, discouraged, disgruntled Christians. No, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord acknowledge your wretchedness, acknowledge your sin, see your sinfulness for the exceeding sinfulness that it is, and he will what? He will lift you up. (laughs) He will lift you up. It's Paul's lament. Think with me now. It's Paul's lament that provokes the rhetorical question in verse 24. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you see what it does? You see what that sense of anguish over sin does. You see what that that sense of wretchedness, that sense of misery does to the one who has a renewed heart and a renewed mind. What does it do? It sends them fleeing for deliverance, fleeing for salvation, fleeing for grace, fleeing for mercy. I need help. I need deliverance. I need salvation. It sends Paul fleeing to his only remedy. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That principle of sin remains. Indwelling Corruption, the indwelling corruption that Paul laments is found to be operative in our physical members, in our flesh. What Paul refers there in verse 24 to the body, this body. Our body is the domain in which this this principle of sin is operative. And it's operative unto death. Romans chapter six, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. It's like a a rotted garment that Paul can't take off. It clings to him. It's like that rotted corpse that we talked about last week that's strapped to him and he cannot be free from it. Paul, by saying this, isn't saying that there's something inherently evil about our body, about our physical bodies. Once again, Paul is disassociating himself here from the old man. What is Paul referring to? He's referring to the old man. He's, he's disassociating himself from his sinful flesh, verse 5. In the sinful flesh lie sinful passions at work in his members, in his faculties, bearing fruit to death. So Paul disassociates himself now. He disassociates himself as a, as a new man in Christ. He disassociates himself from that old man, that, that body of death, his fallen flesh in which that principle of sin is still operative, in which Paul feels as though he is still held captive. And he asks the question, verse 24, who will deliver me from this flesh? Who will deliver me from this corrupt principle, from this remaining sin? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul's not talking about the inherent sinfulness of our physical bodies. He's talking about that principle of sin that exists there. Paul then answers. He answers with the only confidence assurance that can ever meet with that question, that can ever extinguish the anguish of a a sinful heart. I thank God, verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul answers the anguish of his heart with a triumphant confidence, a victorious confidence. His ultimate deliverance from his misery in sin, or the misery of sin, is assured. It's assured. So what you don't find the Apostle Paul doing here in expressing his experience to us, or using his experience as an illustration for us, what you don't find the Apostle Paul doing is wallowing in despair, or wallowing in discouragement. You don't find the Apostle Paul turning inward upon his sin, And not looking outward to the remedy. You don't find the Apostle Paul putting himself back under the condemnation of the law. What you find Paul doing is rejoicing in hope. Wretched, to be sure, over sin. We cannot um, play games with that. There's no escaping that fact of our inward corruption on this side of eternity. That's why we look forward, brothers and sisters, to that side of eternity. You can't play games with that fact. I once had a brother come up to me and say, well, you know, why are we always um, saying, in this true story, why are we always saying that we have to ask forgiveness for our sins? Why should we be asking for forgiveness for our sins? Jesus Christ Paid the penalty for our sins, past, present, and future. Why would we ever mourn over sin? Why would we feel sorry for our sin? Why would we ever ask for forgiveness? Because we sin. <laughs> uh, and that's a fact on this side of eternity. <laughs> so, and that, if, if, if you acknowledge, recognize, understand the weight of your sin, the gravity of your sin, and the price that was paid for your redemption, the only reasonable, rational response to our sin is one of anguish, misery, wretchedness. Paul answers that wretchedness not not by wallowing in it, not by staying there, but looking to his confidence, his reward, the ultimate deliverance from his misery, is assured. We cannot despair. We cannot respond in hopelessness. We cannot respond in faithlessness or unbelief. Why? Because we are assured deliverance. We're assured deliverance from this body of death through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as you and I, brothers and sisters, as we sit here this morning contending with Paul against this body of death, against that principle of sin that we find within our own flesh, contending against our sinful flesh, through which that principle of sin wages war against us, when we find ourselves in misery over our remaining sin, what is the deliverance that we look forward to in union with the Lord Jesus Christ? What is the deliverance that we hope in? That deliverance is resurrection. Resurrection. That's what's being implied here in the text. Resurrection. We don't hope for death. Do we? Resurrection. I think it was R.C. Sproul that once said um, he doesn't fear death because of the hope that he has in the resurrection. So he doesn't fear death. What he fears is dying. <laughs> no one looks forward to that. But what do we hope in? What is our hope in? Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ for resurrection. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, that we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, when he comes will transform our lowly body, literally the body of our humiliation. Jesus Christ will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed, Summorphos, sumorphos. It's conformed with or, or shaped into the form of his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself, The Lord Jesus Christ created all things, created all things. And now the Lord Jesus Christ, Hebrews 1 says, sustains all things by what? The word of his power, the word of his power. (laughs) The unseen universe, ineffable spheres, unbeheld by human eyes that exist only for the delight of God himself. The Lord Jesus Christ sustains all by the word of his power. And that is the same word of power that works in us to transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed, sumorphosed to his glorious body. Far more than simply delivering us from wrath and hell, right? Far more than simply delivering us from wrath and hell, delivering us from this body of death. Sin, weakness, corruption, Temptation, sorrow, sickness, discouragement, despair, pain, suffering, failure. It all gives way to victory. Christus victor. Amen. It's something for which Paul says in Philippians 3 that we eagerly await. We eagerly await. It's something we we groan for. Look at Romans chapter 8. It's something in our text that Paul is groaning for. Four Romans chapter 8. Just flip the page. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. Paul says that I consider that the sufferings, certainly the sufferings that Paul refers to there includes uh, suffering against sin. Right? In addition to Suffering, persecution, the suffering that a Christian experiences, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation, this is interesting, the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. There is a time coming where there will be a revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And what is that hope? Verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption, just as the sons of God will be delivered from their bondage to corruption, the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Our glorious liberty from sin. <laughs> our glorious liberty consisting in our freedom from the flesh. Our freedom from the old man. Freedom from indwelling corruption. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans. The word means anguishes. It laments. It, it it's feeling wretched, as it were. The whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Spirit is our guarantee. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. I thought we were already redeemed. Already and not yet. There's an already aspect of our redemption and a not yet that is soon coming. And we ourselves groan. The word is "stenazo." It's, um, it's a word that refers to anguish of heart. It refers to misery. Those who must wait for that deliverance that is yet to come groan, waiting for it. Acts 7, the word is used of the Israelites groaning under hard bondage in Egypt. You know, Pharaoh took away the straw. Maintained their quota of bricks and the Israelites stenazzo. They groaned under the burden of that hard bondage. The Christian groans under the burden of his sin. Verse 24, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. We haven't seen it yet, right? Hope is faith for the future. That's what hope is. Hope is faith in what is coming. Hope that is seen, that is realized, that we have, that's not hope. We have it. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it. It's a promise of God. It is sure. It is assured. We have a confident hope. We eagerly wait for it with perseverance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul describes believers as those who stenadzo, they groan in this present tent. A tent is a temporary dwelling place. It's not meant to be permanent. We are in a tent and we groan, we stenadzo, being burdened, same word there, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. In other words, we don't want to stay in the tent and we don't want to be unclothed, but further clothed. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for a builder, uh, a building whose builder, whose maker is God, a building made without hands. As long as we're in this present tenth, our fleshly bodies, we will never escape the remaining corruption that plagues us in our Christian lives. Sin will continue to cause anguish of heart. That's what sin does. It causes misery. So that we then, with Paul, we eagerly await in faith, we eagerly wait the redemption of our body. It's the very same truth, very same truth that Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Our corruptible must put on incorruption, our mortal must put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is The law, strength of sin exercised through the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thomas Watson, a Puritan pastor, said this The godly may act faintly in religion, the pulse of their affections may beat low, the exercise of grace may be hindered, as when the course of water is stopped. Instead of grace, working in the godly, corruption, we may see working. Instead of patience, murmuring. Instead of heavenliness, earthliness or worldliness. Thus, lively and vigorous may corruption be in the regenerate. And they may fall into enormous sins. Our confessions characterizes them as grievous sins by which we we grieve the Holy Spirit. But, though their grace may be drawn low, it is not drawn dry. Though grace may be abated, it is not abolished. Grace may suffer an eclipse, not a dissolution. A believer may fall from some degrees of grace, but not from the state of grace itself. Amen. Praise God. Who will deliver me? It's not the, the cry of, a, of wishful thinking oh, I hope and pray that he will. I'm not sure that he will. (laughs) No, 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 no. It is the cry of an assured, confident hope. A hope that has been authored or cultivated within our hearts, so to speak, by the Spirit of God himself, who is our guarantee of that hope. Our confession says it this way. Though they may, through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of the means of their preservation, although this may lead to the to their fall into grievous sins. That was what we spoke of in our call to repentance this morning, right? The neglect of our salvation. And though through that we may fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby we incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to have our graces and our comforts impaired, have our hearts hardened and our consciences wounded, hurt, and scandalize others even, bring temporal judgment upon ourselves, yet they shall renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Jesus Christ to the end. That's a promise of Scripture, a promise of God's word. He cannot lie and will not deny himself. Romans chapter 7, verse 24 Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Take it to the bank. I thank God I will be delivered from this body of death through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's the only way you're going to be delivered from that body of death. If you don't turn to Jesus Christ in faith, when that day comes, rather than being suited with a body that is our heavenly habitation, made eternal in the heavens by God without hands, you're going to be suited with a body that is made for everlasting torment, made for everlasting punishments, made for hell. You're not gonna be delivered from this body of death. You're going to be delivered over to a body that endures death for all eternity, a body that will never escape the torments of an everlasting death. For the believer delivered from this body to a body that is gloriously transformed, a body gloriously conformed to the body of his victory, to the body of his triumphant resurrection. Beloved, we are the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. So then, Paul concedes, verse 25, Paul concedes in this life with the mind then, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Paul concludes with a summary of that conflict that marks the life of every believer. It's the reality of our Christian lives. That statement summarizes the life of not just a Christian, but a mature Christian, every Christian, there's no one perfect. And sometimes we, we, we have the tendency to think of others, right, of, of putting someone on a pedestal, thinking, certainly thinking of ourselves more highly than we think of others, but thinking of them more highly than we should. Of glorying in men, or glorying in man, when that is a sinner just like you. You are a sinner just like them. We all fall short. We're all at some stage in our sanctification eagerly awaiting deliverance from the body of death that we find ourselves in. By the grace of God, we're being sanctified. By the grace of God only. So that, that conflict, that conflict marks or characterizes The true life of a Christian. What we see in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 23, 25, characterizes the life of a genuine Christian. Our hope, though, is sure. Our hope is steadfast. We hope for what we do not see, but we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And what do we do while we wait for it with perseverance? We battle. We're called to Christian resistance. Do not present the faculties of your soul as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves as alive to God and the members of your bodies as instruments of righteousness to God. We battle, the battle rages on. We're to remain steadfast in the battle without wavering, fueled by the confident assurance of faith that we will one day soon be fully and finally delivered. And that through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now notice with me, I want you to see the contrasts that are established in the text. The law of God, verse 25, as opposed to the law of sin. The mind of the redeemed as opposed to the flesh of the redeemed. We're not talking about a lost person struggling in his sin. We're talking about the one whose mind has been renewed. The one whose heart has been renewed. As opposed to that principle of sin or that flesh. The Christian with his mind representing the inner man, the seat of who he is as a person, he serves God through his law. He understands the law, he delights in the law, and he serves God by obeying God's law. He presents or submits his members as instruments of righteousness to God. But he acknowledges that the old man, identified with his indwelling sin, identified with his remaining corruption, still remains. That old man that he calls the flesh continues to serve that principle of sin that he finds lurking within his members. And notice, Paul Paul assumes responsibility for both. He doesn't absolve himself of any responsibility for sin. He does not merely say, notice, does not merely say that with his mind, he serves the law of God, and with his flesh, he serves the law of sin, somehow to excuse himself that he is not his flesh. But rather, Paul says that with the mind I myself serve the law of God, implying that with the flesh, I myself serve the law of sin. Paul himself is the active agent in both. And every Christian is compelled to acknowledge that. You have no excuse for your sin. Well, you know, I don't want to sin. You don't have any excuse for your sin. I desire holiness. You have no excuse for your sin. It's not going to be desire that does it. it. Desire doesn't absolve you from a pattern of sin in your life. A desire for righteousness doesn't, des, doesn't absolve you from a pattern of sin in your life. With Paul, you must acknowledge responsibility for both. It's Paul's personal responsibility for his sin that leads to his anguish of heart in verse 24. He doesn't cry out, oh, wretched flesh that I find myself trapped in. (laughs) I identify as a glorified man, but I'm trapped inside of this. (laughs) 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 What does Paul say? Paul says, rather, wretched man that I am. Do you see? Paul's conviction under God's holy law drives him to the one person, the only person, who's able to help in our time of need. Now, I want you to think with me on our time remaining. It's not raining yet. Think with me for a moment. (laughs) In in his defense of the law, Paul's purpose in this section of text is to to defend the law of God. He's going to vindicate the law of God. But think with me for a moment. Paul, in defending the law of God, incidentally draws our attention to two distinct contrasts that help us to explain the use or the benefit of the law of God to Christians. Think with me now. If you misunderstand these contrasts, you're going to misunderstand understand the text. That's where I think many in their interpretation of Romans 7 go wrong. They don't they don't acknowledge or they they fail to appreciate the contrast that is set up by the text, and they misinterpret Romans 7. And if you don't understand the contrast, you'll you'll struggle to understand how Paul's statements in these verses can be reconciled to his statements elsewhere. These are statements that Paul is making as a converted person, okay? Now listen, first, there is a necessary distinction to be made between our positional status or our positional reality as Christians and our practical experience. There is of necessity a distinction in scripture that must be made. And texts of scripture call for that distinction to be made. Paul knows who he is in union with Jesus Christ. He knows who he is. He knows the blessings that have been given to him. He knows his status as justified in the sight of God, having peace with God, having been reconciled to God. And yet Paul knows in practical experience that he does not yet live in perfect conformity with that blessed estate. He finds that he cannot yet live in accord with the standard that he has set his heart upon. We've talked about that a little bit before. There is a standard that he hopes for, a standard that he aspires to, a person that he longs to be like. And in his heart, he can't yet attain to that standard. So there is a distinction then to be made between positional reality, those blessings given to us by the person and work of Jesus Christ and Paul's present experience. The Bible often instructs us, reminds us, charges us to live now as we truly are in Jesus Christ. We see commandments. all of the Scripture is replete with commandments for us to live as we truly are, for us to be who we truly are in Jesus Christ. Why? Why would the Scripture call for that? Because that's our aim. That's our purpose. That's called sanctification. Our sanctification is to conform us into the image of the one who renewed us. We're called to be sanctified. We are predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. We're in need of sanctification. There are many examples of this in scripture. Look with me, a few pages to the right, 1 Corinthians chapter five. 1 Corinthians chapter five. You do need to listen fast because we are... Uh, we're, we're, uh, <laughs> we do have a baptism service we want to get to. 1 so. <laughs> Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 6. Paul, Paul in verse 6 con- is confronting the Corinthians in their sinful boasting. He's confronting them in their, their sinful self-confidence. They're not laboring to purge sin from their midst. And so he says to them, verse 6, to the Corinthian church, your glory is not good. Your boasting, not good. Do you not know... That a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Therefore, purge out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. What is he saying? Get rid of the old leaven so you can be a new lump. Why? Because you are a new lump. <laughs> so be What you are, do you see? Live in accord with what you are. In other words, may your practical experience, may your practical labor line up, be in accord with what the Lord has secured for you in Christ. For indeed, Jesus Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, work out your salvation with fear and trembling to be who you were made to be to be who you are. Lean in to the conflict, right? The battle is not to be shied away from. We're to lean in to the war. We're to lean into the conflict. We're to lean into the battle and we are to fight. Why? Because we want to be conformed to who the Lord has made us to be. Colossians chapter three. Flip over to Colossians chapter three. Again, a few pages to the right. Colossians chapter three. Look there, beginning in verse one, where there's this, this positional reality, positional reality that is distinct from our practical experience, but our, we are called in our practical experience to pursue conformity with that positional reality. Make sense? Colossians chapter three, verse one, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. If you are in Christ, a new creation, then seek to be a new creation. (laughs) Seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. For you died. Why are you going to act like you haven't died? You have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So put on the new man. Paul says, put on the new man. Therefore, verse five, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So put off the old man, right? Put on the new man, seek those things which are above, Seated at the right hand of God, where Christ is, set your mind on things above and put off the old man. Put to death your members which are on the earth. But now, verse 8, you yourselves are to put off all these. Put off that old man. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you already have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Having put off, since you have put off, or since you have put on, those are heiress for you folks studying the language, past tense, that past tense putting off and that past tense putting on is the ground of the command to put off and to put on. Do you see? That reality becomes the foundation on which we pursue conformity to the reality in our present experience. The, the, the Bible is replete with that. Romans chapter six. Romans chapter six, verse two. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? In other words, you've died to sin, so stop living in it now. You've died to sin, so now pursue conformity to that positional reality. May your practical experience line up That's how we pursue our sanctification. Verse six, our old man was crucified. So then put off the old man, put him off. Paul is wrestling with him in Romans seven. What is he wrestling to do? He's wrestling to put him off. He wants to be rid of him. Who will finally deliver him? Jesus Christ, praise God. But he is resisting in the power of the spirit to mortify the deeds of the body, to put him off. Look at Romans six. And look there at verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Take, uh, with an understanding of the facts, make a calculated, informed judgment. I am dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, in conformity with that Positional reality, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey in its its lusts. Pursue conformity with reality. Four, verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you. Positional truth, positional reality, a positional promise. Those statements of Paul then, what does this mean? Those statements of Paul in Romans chapter 7, are not inconsistent with Paul's experience. They're not inconsistent with Paul's experience. In Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, they're not inconsistent with Paul's previous comments and his comments elsewhere. In fact, it's these statements that should motivate us and encourage us to fight, to battle. I, in, in, in pursuing God's will, God's will for you, is your sanctification. That's God's will for us. You wanna know what God's will is? God's God's will is our sanctification. We need to pursue our sanctification, why? Because it brings us into conformity with the one who sanctifies us. Brings us into conformity with that positional truth, that positional reality that he has won for us through his shed blood at the cross. It's not unlike warnings in scripture. Warnings in scripture, real they're not hypothetical warnings. I wish that you were cold or hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm, warm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Warning, severe warning. Those warnings should drive us fleeing to our only hope, who is Jesus Christ. Second, second. There's a necessary distinction here between law and gospel. Law and gospel. It's been well said, that the entirety of God's revelation to man contained in the scriptures could be categorized under two headings, law and gospel. John Cahoon, the law and the gospel are the principal parts of divine revelation. Rather, they are the center, the sum, the substance of all the other parts of it. Every passage of sacred scripture is either law or gospel or is capable of being referred either to the one or to the other. The history contained in the Bible that records the actions of fallen men is a history of fallen men acting in obedience to the moral law of God or in disobedience to the moral law of God. They act in ways that reflect belief in the gospel or they act in ways that reflect disbelief in the gospel. Nations, peoples, kings, subjects acting in accord with the dictates of God's law, which is holy, just, and good, or nations, peoples, kings, and subjects acting in violation of God's law and drawing its curse. They give evidence of the grace of God at work through the gospel, or they give evidence of the depravity of man and desperate need of the gospel. All of the blessings of the Bible are blessings given upon upon obedience to the law of God or blessings given given through the grace of God manifested in the gospel. All of the threats, all of the warnings, or the curses found in the Bible are threats, warnings, and curses associated with disobedience to the law of God. Galatians chapter three, verse 10, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Or, they are threats and warnings associated with living in rebellion to the gospel. 2nd Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 7. The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking a vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. The promises given in the Bible are promises that are associated with the law or with the gospel. The encouragements given in the Bible are encouragements that are either associated with the law or with the gospel. Cahoon again, there is not in the sacred volume one admonition, one reproof, one exhortation, but what refers either to the law or to the gospel or to both. The entirety of God's revelation to man contained in the scriptures could be categorized under these two headings, the law and the gospel. Both the law and the gospel reveal to man what he should be and what he should do in relationship to God but only the gospel provides the necessary strength supplies the necessary hope the provision for sin and the necessary power against sin in union with the law of Jesus the law oh, in union with the Lord Jesus Christ the law exposes our sin the gospel offers our remedy the law condemns The gospel redeems. You see the the distinction in Romans chapter seven, set up by Paul's practical experience from positional reality, the law and the gospel. Charles Bridges says this, by the trumpet of the law, God proclaims war with sinners. Hence the conflict. By the jubilee trumpet of the gospel, he publishes peace on earth, goodwill toward men. The law is a sound of terror to convinced sinners. The gospel is a joyful sound, good tidings of great joy. The former represents God as a God of wrath and vengeance. The latter is a God of love and grace and mercy. One presents him to sinners as a consuming fire. The other exhibits the precious blood of the lamb, which quenches the fire of his, fire of his righteous indignation. The former, a throne of judgment. The latter, a throne of grace the matter, that matter of making clear the distinction between law and gospel is exceedingly important in the life of a Christian. It's exceedingly important to our understanding of Romans chapter seven. Why? It's because, brothers and sisters, the law is intended to send us fleeing to Jesus Christ in hope. Allow the law of God to crush your heart. Why? Why? Because it will send you fleeing to Jesus Christ to renew it. Send you fleeing to Jesus Christ for hope. Our confession again. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works, to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them. In that, as a rule of life, it informs them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, Discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, their hearts, their lives. So as examining themselves thereby, they may come to a further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have for Christ and the perfection of his obedience. It drives us to Romans chapter 8 verse 1 if the Lord allows, the subject of our text next week. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak, it was powerless through the flesh, God did it. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. All God's people said, amen. Praise God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you for uh, your infinite wisdom in authoring through the Apostle Paul by your Spirit this experience of Paul in his life as a Christian man so that we can come to understand our relationship to your law, our relationship to indwelling sin, and that with that anguish of heart that we share with the Apostle, we might flee to our only hope, our only remedy, which is the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, who gave himself a sacrifice for sin that we might be redeemed. I pray, Lord, that we would not merely hear, but that we would heed these glorious truths and seek, pursue a life that is in conformity with the glorious blessings that we have as justified in the sight of God, reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, for everyone here, that no one would leave here, Lord, without considering their the state of their humiliation as they see it in conformity with how you see it, that against that black backdrop they might see the preciousness of Jesus Christ and his work at Calvary, and they might embrace him through faith and be saved to the everlasting praise and glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray these things. And for your glory, God, amen.